This is the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cone Franz. If you would like to support and be part of our community, you can start by visiting zennovascotia.com. Dogen says, When you arise from sitting, move slowly and quietly, calmly and deliberately. Do not rise suddenly or abruptly. It's interesting to me that this is included. This is just how to get up when you're done. Move slowly and quietly, calmly and deliberately. We have a tendency to rush to be where we are or to be where we will be. We don't rush to be where we are. We imagine our, our story or even our day in terms of locations. I was here and then I was here and then I was here. And there's this, this whole other story about moving from place to place that, unless something really interesting happens, seems not nearly as important as having been in this location and this location and this location. And when we get that into our minds, then we find that it's uh, perfectly reasonable to rush to get to the next location and to rush to get to the next location because that's where the action is. But you're always here. It, it, it's one of these things that we can't say enough. Right? That wherever you go, there you are. You can't be somewhere else. You can go somewhere else. But you can't get to somewhere else from where you are. Now, going fast or going slow, it doesn't change any of that. But slow helps you see it. So we sit down as the the foundation of this practice. We sit down and we're perfectly still. We aren't moving at all. And if you're like me, and if you're like most people, the first thing that you realize from doing that is that you're never here. Even if you're physically here, you're never where you are. So we spend a little time with that. And then, to kind of drive the point home, we get up very slowly. And then we walk at such an absurdly slow pace that for many people is just maddening. Right? So that you cannot possibly ignore the fact that you are here in this step. And we compound the lesson by making sure that you never get anywhere. 
It's all by design. So that you can start to notice just being someplace and then being in the next place and then being in the next. It's an easy mistake then on the other side that after we engage in this kind of practice or we encounter this kind of practice to start to imagine that to do something in a, uh, in a way that reflects the practice is to do everything slowly, right? If I were to ask any group of people to just perform and act mindfully, there's a very good chance that they would do it in slow motion. That's a mistake. It's useful. But you don't have to be slow every time. You don't have to be slow forever. Being here means that if you imagine this as a, as a movie reel with however many frames per second, 24 frames per second, that you're in every frame. Slow motion has nothing to do with it. But Dogen knows that we don't know that very well. So he says, go slowly and deliberately. There's nothing waiting for you in the standing position after you finish Zazen, right? Boing! He continues. This is interesting. In surveying the past we find that transcendence of both mundane and sacred and dying while either sitting or standing have all depended entirely on the power of Zazen. Transcendence of mundane and sacred is fine, but we have to stop for a minute about when we read dying while sitting or standing. This is similar to earlier in the text when he says Zazen is not meditation. If he's saying that you die when you sit and you die when you stand, he's saying dying is not what you think it is. And sitting is not what you think it is. And standing is not what you think it is. I've heard this line used over and over again as a, uh, a part of an argument that says that this entire practice is really just sitting. There's just sitting, which is often how we translate shkantaza, or the kind of sitting that we do. And then there's just sitting, which is to say, sitting to the exclusion of all other activities. And there's a school of thought, certainly within this tradition, that 
we should do both. <laughs> but if we pay attention, we see that everything always, the math always goes both ways. If A equals B, then B equals A. So while Dogen says that transcendence of both mundane and sacred and dying while either sitting or standing have all depended entirely on the power of Zazen, it is equally true to say that the power of Zazen depends entirely on transcendence of both mundane and sacred and dying while either sitting or standing. Zazen is not a battery that you plug into your life to fuel you in some way. Zazen is as much an expression of your life as your life is an expression of it. You cannot lean on it. You cannot blame it. (laughs) You cannot use it as an excuse and say, well, I'm just not sitting enough. If Zazen is separate from your life in that way, we've missed the whole point. He continues, in addition, triggering awakening with a finger, a banner, a needle, or a mallet, and effecting realization with a whisk, a fist, a staff, or a shout, these cannot be understood by discriminative thinking, much less can they be known through the practice of supernatural power. All of these are references to koans. They're all references to Zen stories in which students were awakened through something physical. There was a teacher who just raised his finger all the time, every time. And for him, it really worked. For his student who imitated him, it didn't work at all. Things went badly for him. A banner, a needle, a mallet. I don't remember what the mallet was, but that sounds unfortunate. Or affecting realization with a whisk. I meant to bring a whisk today to show you. A fist, a staff, or a shout. And Zen traditionally has had a lot of shouts. Regardless of the story, the punchline is always the same. Someone who is trapped in discursive thinking is shaken out of it. One time I was sitting in my teacher's temple. I was sitting all alone in the morning as I I did most days. I remember it was freezing cold, so I I used to sit in... uh, a winter coat and a winter hat and and these buildings are old 
you know, they, so when the wind blows, you can kind of, you feel it. They're not, they're not really strong. I was sitting and I heard this, this sound behind me. Bam! And the whole building shook. And it was the effect of having been struck by something, except that there was nothing felt. And I remember just feeling electrified by this. And, and it was so dramatic that it even cut through for a moment the question of what was that? Everything stops because you really don't know what it was. So there's this almost a feeling of threat, right? What's going to happen next? By the way, his temple is inside a, the caldera of a volcano. So the volcanic activity and the earthquakes are crazy. So you don't, you just don't know. But I remember that feeling. And then going outside a little while later and seeing that an enormous bird had flown into the window and, and died. It was one of the most beautiful birds I've ever seen. It was huge. It was, it was green with kind of goldish tint to it. I have no idea. And it hit so hard that it just, it shook me into a completely different way of being alert. All the stories are like that. Usually, what makes the stories great, I guess, is that I think that often we forget to be invested in the way that the people are invested in the stories. And so if we are awakened, we're awakened from something like sleep. You know, we get stuck in the fantasy of our lives, not in the deep question of our lives, but just in the kind of distraction of it. And if we're lucky, something comes and we notice where we are. But in these stories, the stories are always based on the idea that someone is really asking the question. And they're diving into that question, but they don't know how to answer. And that investment becomes so deep that they can be shaken into something new. All of these questions that people are asked, you know, what is the sound of one hand clapping, whatever that is. When you try to answer that, you find, I think, ordinarily, that that this sense that something is missing, right? In the sense that you sense you're missing something. What don't I get? (laughs) What am I missing about this question? And then something comes along, and it isn't the answer to the question. It's the answer to this feeling that something was lacking. I don't know if I've told you this story, but I'll I'll share it. I think it's wonderful. Uh, Gasan Joseki, who was the student of, who was a student of Keizan. Keizan was a student of Kōun Ejō, uh, of Tetsu Gikai, who was a student of Kōun Ejō, who was a student of Dogen. And Keizan had a lot of students. 
and one of them was Gassan Joseki. And Gassan Joseki was not high on the list. You know, he was, he was not the most senior guy. And, but he was sitting on the balcony one time with his teacher and with some of the senior students. And it almost sounds, it sounds to me like teasing a little bit. But they're looking at the moon. And Kazan says to Gassan Joseki, teacher says to the student, he says, hey, did you know there are two moons? And Gassan Joseki says, no, I didn't know there were two moons. And Kazan says, if you don't know that, you'll never know anything. And this sends Gassan Joseki into kind of a spiral of confusion that lasts, in the story I heard, a couple years. And his friends are passing him in the monastery, and they say, how are you doing? And he's like, ah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> leave me alone. <laughs> because I look outside every night, and all I, there's only one moon. But I'm told there's two moons, and I'm told that if I don't understand this, I don't understand anything. And it, it takes him to a very, very kind of delicate point. And one night, he's just sitting in meditation along with everybody else. And he's just, you know, Kazan knows, <laughs> right? This has gone on long enough, <laughs> right? And he walks up behind Gassan Joseki while he's sitting and just snaps his fingers next to his ear. And Gassan Joseki just feels his whole life just kind of fall away. Everything breaks through this trap door. And he's able to let go of the whole thing. It's just like, oh. <laughs> that was his moment. You know. It's not a moment of solving two moons. It's something else. If you cut off discursive thinking, what's left? I ask you that question, but you can't answer it. Because you're thinking about it discursively. What does it mean to be you when that is not how you're functioning? You're left with just you and this, this moment. Whether we call it awakening, whether we call it realization, whether we call it the truth of this moment, the truth of this moment is this moment. Literally, everything you see, everything you hear, everything you taste, and yes, everything you think is pointing to it. Everything. but it's so hard for us to see. Dogen makes this list of all these things, a whisk, a fist, a staff. And then he says, they must represent conduct beyond seeing and hearing. Are they not a standard prior to knowledge and views? 
I love this word standard mm -hmm. because standards are things that we set. Mm -hmm. And here Dogen is saying, no. The standard is set before you show up. This being the case, he continues, intelligence or lack of it is not an issue. This is the good news part of this text. Make no distinction between the dull and the sharp-witted. If you concentrate your effort single-mindedly, that in itself is wholeheartedly engaging the way. And here we have to be careful again. We have to employ Zen math. He says, if you concentrate your effort single-mindedly, we have concentrate and we have mind. And we hear this and we think, this is mental. Right? I just need to get my brain just right. I need to go to that deep diamond clarity where my mind is a laser. When I do that, I will be wholeheartedly engaging the way. But everything in this tradition reminds us that there's no such thing as just mind. Mind and body don't get to be separated. There's no moment where we float off into space separate from this. And so even though he says, concentrate your effort single-mindedly, he could just as easily have said, concentrate your effort with your whole body. It's the same thing. If you want a good litmus test for if something is a Zen teaching or not, if it's saying that body and mind are separate, it's not. Practice realization is naturally undefiled. There's nothing you can do to it. Going forward is, after all, an everyday affair. There's this phrase that comes up and is written on my wall in my office. It says, everyday mind is the way. I've seen this all over the place. But we can spend a lot of time trying to figure out what this is. I don't think we can understand on first glance what everyday mind is the way it means. Everyday means not special which is how we often hear it. 
But every day also means this. In that there cannot be a way other than this. There's no transfer to another way that doesn't start where you are in this way. Right? A way is a way. You can't get to another way without being on the way that you're on. So if there is a way, you're on it. It's so simple, but we can spend our lives missing this point. It's not a parallel highway. Even if it looks like that, when you cut across to get there, that's the way. You cannot escape being where you are. And so you cannot escape being where you're supposed to be. And that's enough for today. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.